from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House has a new nominee for the next vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The commander of U.S. Fleet Forces, Navy Admiral Christopher Grady, will fill the role in the department. Grady will replace the previous vice chairman, Air Force General John Hyten, who is retiring later this month. USNI News reports that the Navy has approved five exemptions for the Defense Department's COVID-19 vaccine requirement. All Navy service members are required to get the vaccine by November 28th. A Navy spokesperson, Lieutenant Commander Andrew DeGarmo, says that all five of those exemptions are for medical reasons. No one has yet been discharged as a result of not receiving the vaccine. The Navy has also not released the number of religious exemptions it has made for the vaccine mandate. The White House's nominee for the Defense Department CIO, John Sherman, says he wants to create a new strategy to develop cyber talent for DOD. If the Senate confirms him, Sherman will be in control of the government's largest ever IT budget. He's currently acting CIO for the department. Sherman says that if he's confirmed, he plans to recruit cyber and digital talent as a whole-of-nation effort. As the U.S. deals with the COVID-19 pandemic, supply shortages, and rising tensions with China, the Air Force has to manage risks to its supply chain, which is essentially everything the department needs to maintain their weapon systems. Stephen Gray is the director of the 448th Supply Chain Management Wing at the Air Force Sustainment Center. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. So the 448th Supply Chain Management Wing supports not only the Air Force, but other services, You've got 50 countries for foreign military sales. Can you tell us what exactly your organization manages? Sure. Um, we manage complex aircraft parts that are used by all of our customers. Uh, and I'll give you an easy way to distinguish it. On aircraft, you have nuts, bolts, screws, and washers that you can throw away once they're used. Then you have very expensive radar, landing gear, wheels and brakes, structural parts, things like that. And what we do is we manage all that inventory for the Department of Defense, and then we're also responsible for the upkeep of that inventory. And it's uh, the way we do that is through repair services, uh, primarily through our organic depots, but also through the commercial industrial base. So how disruptive has the pandemic been to your supply chains? So it's caused us a couple of problems. Um, it, with the suppliers, uh, whether it's organic or, or commercial suppliers, we've been subject to disruptions for two, week, two weeks, one week here or there. What that does is it creates air pockets in the supply chain where we just lose the, uh, we have an interruption of the flow of material into our bases. Uh, the other thing is it's caused us to change our work posture. We've gone to almost a near full telework posture for my wing. We've got our people dispersed, uh, working from home. And, and because of the great work the Air Force has done to keep us connected, we're able to do our wartime and peacetime mission in a dispersed environment. So the two real impacts of the COVID pandemic. You know, as anyone know who's, who's trying to buy a new car, there's a shortage of semiconductors. Is that affecting the Air Force, I wonder, and DOD at large? So to a degree. Um, we, we'll see part problems um, depending on what happens to a supplier. But the thing that's unique about us, and I think a big benefit, is that we carry inventory 
to buffer against variability and disruptions. So if we do run into a problem with a supplier, we generally have a little bit of inventory to keep up um, with our demand, uh, satisfy our customers, our bases, our depots, until we can recover that supplier. I wonder if you have any special authorities. So let's say there is a, a lack of semiconductors and that you know, you're gonna need it. Are you able to go in and say, you know what, this is for the Defense Department, I'm taking it, the car industry is going to have to wait. So there's a little bit, a little bit of help that we get from the government. Um, and I would just remind everyone that the parts that we're managing and that we use are very different than car parts, right? Hard to find B-52 parts on the commercial market compared to something that you might buy in AutoZone, like a battery. But um, in select cases, the government has the ability to go to a vendor and say, we need priority over all the other work that you're doing uh, for these particular platforms. And it's a very select few. Uh, the other opportunity that we have that helps us sometimes is we can, we can go to a vendor and ask them to surge, to increase production, put additional shifts in their shops, hire additional manpower. Uh, it comes at a cost, uh, but we do have the ability to go do that when we've found that there's a disruption. Or let's say there's a contingency, we just need the support we can't go and ask for additional work. What about components coming from China? Are, is there any, um, you know, isn't that a risk to the supply chain? Sure. Um, there's risks all, all around, although I'll say not only um, our concerns about suppliers that are overseas, uh, but not only in that country, but any country um, where, where we're dependent on a supply chain that is very long. Um, like you're seeing in the ports of Los Angeles, we can be we can incur disruption just based on clogging up a supply chain. Um, there's other things that could cause disruptions: a cyber attack, a weather problem, um, a strike. Those types of things all cause problems, and that creates gaps in that supply chain. Uh, so we're we're generally concerned with all suppliers and trying to build resiliency in the supply chain, so we can avoid those types of problems. We've invested heavily in trying to understand where our risks are uh, through a supply chain risk management program. We've built analytics that help us see and predict where we might run into problems. And then our approach is to try to mitigate that by creating additional sources or having a little bit of inventory to, to, to carry us through in case we run into a problem. I was going to ask you about the use of technology to monitor and manage the supply chain. Absolutely critical. Um, and I'll, I'll say of all the business areas that you could look at, supply chain is probably one of the more advanced from an analytics and uh, data perspective. We have tons and tons of data that we have at our disposal able, able to use that to help better make better decisions and identify vulnerabilities. Uh, the analytics uh, has advanced so far. Uh, what we're able to do in data sciences uh, and take advantage of all that capability really puts us well ahead of where we were even five to ten years ago. So what have you learned, Steve, from the pandemic that will allow you to be prepared for, I hate to say it, the next one, or what other you know, major events that can disrupt the supply chain? Yeah, so, um, well, it, Prepared is the word, right? You want to be ready for those disruptions. And in the, the Department of Defense and the military, preparedness is our middle name, right? And so, so quite frankly, I, I like to tell people this. The pandemic has taught the rest of the world what we as supply chain professionals have dealt with for many years, right? In my entire career, 
working in the government as a supply chain manager, we've dealt with these types of problems. It's just not news uh, like it is today with the pandemic. So just like you're seeing problems in grocery stores where we don't have cleaners, we can't find bacon, you can't get whatever product you're looking for, we've always dealt with that. Uh, we have found two, two real key strategies to help us out. One, have the ability to make the parts or repair the parts ourselves. That's why we have these large industrial complexes that serve us. They're fantastic in terms of technology and capability that they have. We're able to sustain the force organically with our own manpower and our own tooling. That's a big plus for us. The second part is through inventory. And again, we don't we don't want volumes and piles and piles of inventory, but we want to smartly buy the right amount of inventory and maintain it so that we can have it when it's needed. And those really two of the biggest pieces that we do to make sure that we're resilient in the face of these disruptions. All right. Well, Steve, thank you very much for joining us. Nice to have you on the program. Thank you, ma'am. Anytime. Happy to talk. Coming next, the Defense Department faces continuing issues with members who refuse to get vaccinated. Still ahead on Government Matters, the long-term challenges of compliance and how to boost DOD's vaccination rates. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Washington Post reports that up to 12,000 Air Force personnel are rejecting the Pentagon mandate and refusing to get vaccinated for COVID-19. Overall, hundreds of thousands of service members are unvaccinated. Those who do not get the vaccine could face dismissal from the service and even charges in the military justice system. Catherine Kuzminski is a senior fellow and director of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. Kate, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Vaccination rates vary among the services, but the first deadline is the Air Force. And as I mentioned, the Washington Post is saying that it's 12,000 are not going to meet the, de the deadline. So what happens now? <laughs> That's right. The, the first deadline was the Air Force, which was yesterday. So we're waiting to see how the Air Force is going to respond to those who are uh, refusing the vaccine uh, to date. Um, there are a number of punitive actions that are available to the Air Force. But of course, 12,000 individuals uh, is anywhere between three and, and five wings of individuals in the size of Nellis Air Force Base. Um, so it's a, it would have a significant impact on Air Force readiness. I thought it was interesting that the punishments are not uniform across the services. So some are talking about administrative action, others are talking about court-martial. That's right. Um, so the, the fundamental issue is the refusal to f uh, follow a lawful order, um, which does is subject to Article 92 charge under the UCMJ. Um, but the services also have to think about how to maintain readiness and balance those issues. So there's a range of ish, uh, punishments that are available to them or remedial actions, um, anything from um, denying a service member the ability to move or to attend a school or to be considered by a promotion board, which will, of course, have long-term effects on their careers. Well, you mentioned readiness, so that's obviously going to be a big issue. Like, what kind of readiness issues are we going to face if service members leave, whether voluntarily or are discharged? 
There could be a real range of outcomes. Um, we don't know which uh, military occupational specialties or uh, bases or ranks are um, refusing the vaccine at this point. If it's equally distributed across the force, that has one uh, type of outcome. But if it's also, uh, if it's located within certain segments or certain um, occupational specialties that could have real impact. So for example, if it's among pilots or air, air maintainers in the Air Force, that would have a really significant outcome on uh, military readiness. What do you think the, the military is doing? What should they be doing to prepare for this? Well, they're certainly thinking through the range of options. Uh, one one interesting fact is that while the mandate came down from the Secretary of Defense, each of the services is able to set their own guidelines and timelines. And so we see a real variety across the services. Um, the earliest deadline being yesterday, which was the active duty Air Force, a number of deadlines coming at the end of November and through December for the other active duty uh, services. And the, the latest deadline being the Army Reserve and National Guard deadline, which isn't until next June 30th. I was going to ask you about that. I find that surprising. June 30th to get vaccinated? That's a long time. It is. And and from the Army's perspective, um, the, the Army is the largest service and has the largest reserve component. It's the most distributed across the, the country. And so um, it gives them the time to fully access everyone um, within the Army Guard and Reserve. Um, but of course, that deadline is nearly eight months away at this point. So let's talk through some scenarios. Let's say that, you know, somebody gets to the point where it's uh, okay, you've passed a deadline, you're unvaccinated. Could uh, could military leaders decide, you know what, we're going to let it slide. Um, we'll give you longer. We'll give you an exemption. How does that work? And what kind of impact is that going to have given that? I mean, frankly, they get they get vaccinated for all kinds of other things. That's right. Uh, military service members receive upwards of 17 vaccinations uh, uh, regularly as they enter the service and through their time in service. Um, the the services uh, can can really um, uh, have a, a range of options available to them. Um, the all eyes are on the Air Force right now to see if that grace period is extended or how they're going to move forward. Um, the uh, within the the air force uh we'll we'll see in the next couple of weeks how swiftly they act um one one area uh we'll be looking for is how they treat individuals who waited until the, the last minute to receive their first dose so they're not complying with the mandate but they are indicating their intent to be fully vaccinated um and how the air force will will handle that and, and the other services as these deadlines roll out well kate will certainly watch this as more deadlines start rolling in but thank you so much for joining us thank you mimi up next some defense contractor employees could quit over the vaccine mandate Straight ahead on Government Matters, the possible impacts on Pentagon priorities. Defense contractors are bracing for the loss of a portion of their workforce as a result of the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal contractors. That loss could negatively impact the Pentagon in the long term. Valerie Encina is a reporter at Breaking Defense. Valerie, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. 
What do we know about how big of a problem this is? Where is it hitting hardest? So that's kind of the big problem right now is we don't know and we probably won't know until the mandate actually goes into effect in early December. Um, right now, you know, we've heard a little bit from certain defense CEOs who have said, you know, Raytheon, uh, Raytheon CEO said, you know, we think 3% of our people are not going to get vaccinated. Um, other CEOs from Northrop, from CACI have said that they believe almost all of their people will get vaccinated, but you know, there still might be you know, a, per, a small percentage that does not. Then when you kind of move down to, down in the supply chain to your mid-tier suppliers, your small businesses, that becomes much more of an open question because even if you're talking about, you know, only a couple people, that can make up quite a big, large portion of that workforce. I was going to ask you about the small businesses because that could really be a big impact. I mean, could they have to shut down? I mean, very possible, or it's very possible that some of the smaller uh, companies that produce uh, components for defense and commercial, they could just say, you know, we don't have this mandate on the commercial side, it's only on defense, maybe we pivot away from doing uh, defense-orientated work, and that would be very, very bad for the Department of Defense. But again, it, it's hard to say how big the problem is. Um, a lot of the bigger industry associations, they're trying to get their arms around this, but it seems very blurry at this point. Well, you mentioned like 3% or, you know, who knows, but the question is, what level of expertise are we talking about? Are these the highly skilled? Are these other areas within the contracting world? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And again, like one that we don't have any sort of view into. Um, investors asked the same question of Northrop Grumman CEO Kathy Warden last week. And she basically said, you know, until we get into December, we aren't really going to know, you know, where these people are coming from that might you know, might be terminated, that might lose their jobs, and what expertise that they might be bringing with them as they leave. It's, it's really hard to say. Or they might decide where I'm going to retire or I'm exactly. going to leave the workforce completely. Exactly. So what are they doing? What are these defense executives doing to prepare? Well, I think a lot of them have, you know, started, you know, trying to educate people, trying to make it very easy for people to get vaccines by bringing vaccines into the workplace. Um, I think some of them are still kind of struggling to know what to do. They're, they, they're looking to the government for guidance about how to implement this policy, about how to implement um, exceptions for people that have, you know, religious, um, you know, they, they don't want to do it for religious reasons or for health, other health reasons that they might have. So but will those exemptions be as stringent as, say, for the military personnel? Like, how does that work? Or other federal employees? Again, like, that's like, they're, they're still sort of working that out. That's the that's a crazy thing. And um, CACI's, um, his, like, the executive there, you know, one thing that he said last week is, you know, we don't we don't just serve the DOD. You know, we create products or provide services for DHS and a lot of other federal agencies. And all of these agencies have different guidance and it's changing hour by hour. So there's just a lot of moving targets. And if you're a big company, you have lots of people, lawyers that can parse through everything. If you're a small mom and pop shop, you know, that's really, really hard to do. That's what these big industry associations are trying 
trying to help out with. But again, it's a very difficult situation. I can see this taking a lot of resources just to figure out what are we doing and how do we implement and what do we do in, in that case. I'm wondering how this is going to trickle down then to the Pentagon and impact things like readiness, weapon systems, cost, scheduling. That's one place that the National Defense Industrial Association is looking for a little bit of clarity. Um, you know, it's, it's very possible that, you know, if, if a part of the workforce leaves, uh, we might see production for certain items slow down. Uh, we might see cost increase as all of these companies have to increase hiring or find people to fill those gaps. And that could actually, you know, cost the price to increase uh, of, of something, cost the schedule to increase. And companies don't want to be caught, they don't want to be held financially responsible for that because in their mind, you know, this was a government mandate. So they're also looking for some clarity on, okay, so what's the path ahead here for when these impacts actually do happen? What's happening in Congress around this issue? What are, what are they saying? Well, as you can imagine, it's incredibly political. Um, you know, Democrats are by and large like very, very um, supportive of the mandate. Um, what we've seen, of, of course, on the GOP side is there is a lot of objection to the mandate um, and people that are, you know, kind of saying, look, there could be some impact to the industrial base, impact to our national security. We should not have a mandate. But, you know, it's also important to understand that, you know, the, the, the lawmakers that have this point of view, there are CEOs that probably agree with them and there are CEOs that probably don't agree with them. It's like the rest of America. There are a lot of there are a lot of viewpoints about this. And it's hard to say that, you know, that the defense community has reached one consensus on this. It's, it's very it's it's a very tough problem. Well, Valerie, thank you for your reporting. We'll see. I guess we'll see what happens. <laughs> you can find a link to Valerie's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on the web at govmatters.tv. And find us on social media. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, or on Twitter at GovMattersTV. And you can connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. Send us your comments about the program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.